at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everybody, everybody back. I'm very glad to have with me um, a great person, a great scientist from the University of Toronto, Dr. Maria Mailopoulos, and she's a scientist and associate director of training programs at the Wilson Center. Program director, health professions education research at the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation, and associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Maria, and thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Sarah, for the invitation. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. So as I was mentioning before, I, this is a very informal conversation. And the way that I like to start usually my conversation is to kind of get a little bit noisy in the in the fact of your childhood and your growing up. And, and I always want to know um, who was Maria growing up? What was she passionate about? What was she interested in and curious about? That's a, that's a question my parents might answer differently from me. Um, but I will say um, that I was passionate about reading, very, very passionate about reading, um, and almost to the exclusion of most other things, which is probably where my parents would uh, say that it was not so good. Um, I, I truly immersed myself in mostly fiction um, and was most comfortable just sitting around on a couch somewhere with books. And my mother is a librarian. Um, she worked for the Toronto District um, or the Toronto Library Board, sorry, um, and, and the Scarborough Library Board. So she, her best friend at work was a child librarian. And so he would always send home all the latest releases and all these amazing books um, that he was recommending across the library system. So I would get first dibs. So I was uh, an avid reader growing up. Um, that would be my, my primary activity. Oh, wow. Uh, no wonder that when I was reading in the Excel Lab website that you had a hard time choosing one book. Yeah. <laughs> How many books do you read a year? Oh, you know what? I've slowed down and I, I wonder sometimes, well, I've slowed down with fiction. I wonder sometimes if in um, the work that we do, we read so much um, that it, it's almost like my eyes. I, mean, I just have reading glasses just this year. Um, but I would say I read a, a, about a book or two a month. Um, if I'm reading the um, YA um, fiction, which my kids are starting to get into, I might read a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. So it's, uh, it's an ongoing habit, um, not as intense as when I was younger. Right. And is it translated into the family as well? Um, I would say, I mean, my husband's an avid reader, so there's that. Um, and our kids are, um, you know, they, they need, it's not, it's not quite as, um, their attention span is different, I think. It could be just generational. Um, books have to grab them from the very beginning. We used to just have to push through, you know, like you, you had to get through that first chapter and move in. Um, but, but they're getting there. They're getting there. Okay. So from, from that uh, aspect of liking to read so much and your interest in, I, I believe you, your background is in human development and cognitive sciences. Uh, what was the story behind? Was a book that inspired you? Somebody inspired you? Like, why did you go into that um, direction in your career? Um, I think that um, reading is a habit that was instilled in my family, partially because my mother's a librarian and my father is a computer scientist. And so he he was a computer scientist at the University of Toronto. 
And so um, I had from a very young age, I still remember a conversation with some of his graduate students when I was quite young, I want to say 12, 13, maybe. And they said, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, I'm going to get a PhD. And they laughed at me because they thought, oh, people, you know, you're just saying that because your father has a PhD and, you know, um, you're not really going to do that because just wait till you get to the real world and you see what it's really like. Um, But no, from a very young age, I had this idea in my head that I was going to get a PhD. And um, yes, reading is a big part of that, as you know. Um, but I think that it was just part of the, the more, the culture of my, my family education was, um, probably the most important thing more than anything else. That's very intriguing to me because <laughs> the version of the story that I have from other people, not about you, but in general, is that you try to do something different from your parents. <laughs> so what was it from your dad's career that got you so intrigued that you wanted to do a PhD too? Yeah. You know, that. <laughs> that's interesting because I think um, when I said I wanted to do my PhD, I think my parents thought I meant c- in computer science. Oh. I did not mean that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I got, I got into, um, you know, university. I started, I progressed. I did take some computer science courses, failed miserably um, mm-hmm. and then had to break the news to them that my passion was actually psychology and human development and uh, cognitive science. Um, but what I did keep um, from my father and because of the work that he did in computer science around requirements engineering and software engineering um, is the interdisciplinary um, idea. So the cognitive science piece where you're looking at um, things like learning um, and computer science informs our understanding of, of learning as well, um, as does philosophy and linguistics and psychology and um, philosophy. So that part, I think I maintained, um, but I absolutely did not wind up being the PhD that my parents had envisioned at all. <laughs> and how, how did you manage to reconcile in their minds that? I waited till they weren't in Toronto and I told them on the <laughs> phone. I, I was <laughs> That's a great strategy. (laughs) They they weren't nearby. So the yelling, you could sort of pull the phone away. (laughs) So what happens then uh, when you ended up being in the medical education community? Like you, me, many other people, we didn't do PhDs in this field and we ended up here for some reason. What was your reason and your story? Um. I think that, I mean, I, I can point to people. So yeah. um, Glenn Regeer was somebody that I, I met. Um, incidentally, um, I was doing casual RA work for Schiffer Ginsburg, another wonderful colleague of ours. Um, but I was doing that work um, to, to make money. I, I, was, I was doing a PhD and I needed some work. Um, and Schiffer had posted this job. Um, and so through her and just talking to her, um, she said, you need to talk to Glenn Regeer. And um, in speaking to Glenn, I mean, my work had always been around the development of expertise, but within knowledge building communities and organizations. So, um, you know, healthcare is a very knowledge intensive um, dis- area, discipline field profession. Um, so it was a great space to study um, the things I was interested in from a learning perspective. Um, so that it was sort of serendipitous in, in that way. Um, but then in speaking more and more to Glenn, I think uh, it became clear that I could find a niche in the health profession education community. Oh, interesting. So. I, I was under the impression, and maybe it was my misunderstanding, that the adaptive expertise focus that you had happening when you arrived to medical education, but it sounds like you had it from before. 
Um, yeah, so my, my PhD supervisors, Marlene Scardamalia and um, Carl Bereiter, where they were my co-supervisors. And so um, they're best known for their work um, on um, surpassing ourselves and, and this idea of um, experienced non-experts versus true experts. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that that work very closely aligns with the framework of adaptive expertise from um, Dan Schwartz and John Bransford and others. And um, it's, a, it's a bit of a rhetorical shift. If you had asked me coming out of my PhD what I studied, I would have said, um, true expertise and knowledge building communities and how knowledge is collectively um, built on in organizations. Um, but in health professions education, the language of adaptive expertise, particularly when you're thinking about clinical reasoning, um, resonated much more. And I know, I know you know a lot about rhetoric. Um, so, you know, we, we chose a slightly different um, vocabulary, um, but it's the same concepts, I think, really. Okay. And um, what were some of the maybe surprises that you found when you tried to bring those ideas into medical education, either positive or negative things that you probably were not expecting about the uptake of this kind of work? Um, I think the the positive side that was that there, there was uptake. So I, I think people were interested. Um, I think that you know, there is a, a little bit of contorting yourself. I think you've had this experience as well, Thyra, um, in the beginning, especially trying to figure out how you're going to communicate your ideas um, in a way that the community and the conversation that is already happening can understand. So there were a few rejections um, along the way, but I think those were really instructive and informative um, and part of that, that notion that you're joining a community. So you need to learn to speak their language. Um, I hadn't fully understood the knowledge politics of, um, of an interdisciplinary space. Um, and so it was both instructive, but surprising because when you come from a discipline um, with a sort of clear set of um, ways of communicating language, terminology, um, methodology, it's easier. So yeah, it was, a, that, that was the challenge. But overall though, I would say that I, I, I enjoyed um, the field immensely. People were very welcoming um, and open to, a, to debates and discussions and ideas, so. I love how you labeled that as knowledge politics. Definitely a struggle we all go through in trying to understand another language. Like when you come to the community and you feel, oh my gosh, this is like different. It's not English <laughs> sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, we kind of one realization or lesson that you learned in trying to come up or um, come to terms with this knowledge politics thing? Um, I think maybe, no, that's a tricky question. Um, I, it's, it's hard to distill it down to one thing. Um, I would say that more than anything, and what I try and also convey to my students is the, is the idea that you need to move beyond just thinking about um, if you like your idea and if you think it's valuable and important um, to trying to understand um, how it fits into um, the world around you and what other people think is valuable and important and why and what might they see when they're listening to you what are they seeing and hearing when they're listening to you um, and it's often not what you think um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting when you go back and you see how people have cited you or um, yeah. you see how the uptake of your work in ways that you didn't expect um, and anticipate. So that's the other piece, actually. Maybe if I were to choose one, that would be it. You lose control. You put it out there and you, you do absolutely lose control. And in an interdisciplinary space, you lose control in very surprising ways. So <laughs> there's that. Wow. That's very insightful. You, you're totally right. Like when you look, look back at your citations and did you realize, 
why am I being cited this way? But it's asking the question, what is it in why I said that it was taken in a different way? Brilliant. That was awesome. You mentioned also that you went through a few rejections, and this is also a kind of a standing question for me. When we choose to be in academia, we know that academia carries the weight of having to deal with rejections. What's your relationship with rejections and how it has evolved throughout the years? I, I think I'll, I'll parse it. So there are good rejections and bad rejections. Okay. And I, I think that's nice. the reality of our of peer review and you know our, the field and the process. So yeah. I'm going to say that the bad ones are are reflective of the the weakness sometimes of peer review in an inter, inter, interdisciplinary space, and that that can happen, and it's nobody's fault. It, it's sort of a reality. But I'll take the good rejections um, and think and talk about them more. Um, I think those are some of the things that people who are in different professions um, absolutely miss. I think it's a gift, honestly, um, to get genuine feedback that engages meaningfully with your work, even if ultimately it's saying this isn't quite ready to go, or it's not um, how, you know, you think you've missed something in this blind spot, it makes this work problematic um, mm -hmm. for X, Y, Z reasons. And so um, I see, you know, my husband's a teacher, he doesn't get any feedback ever. Um, he, he'll he's the first to tell you this because you're in your classroom and you teach you maybe you get feedback from your students but that's not I mean like peer feedback um, so I think honestly if it's done well with the spirit of being constructive and engaging in meaningful debate even through a review process um, it's really a, a great thing to have in, in that field right but How do you, sorry yeah. go ahead no, no, but sometimes it's not done well. That that's the caveat. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's the downside. And I, I'm curious about like you you kind of group them into bad and good rejections. When did you get that kind of uh, insight to to realize that there were good and bad, and how did you arrive to that conclusion? Um, I think probably the first um point where you re where you hit that tension might be methodologically um, because you realize that um, people are critiquing methodology that they know nothing about so there's that that can be that can be a problem um, and then you can dig, dig a little deeper into why that might be happening and that's the more clear um, I can see that in myself too so I know when I'm ill-equipped to um, evaluate a methodology and I'll, I'll label it as such and I won't do so mm -hmm. um, so that's where I think it becomes easily apparent um, in the realm of theory, it becomes a little bit more complex because theory has room for interpretation um, and theory goes in many, many different directions as, as we know. Um, and so I think in that space, it becomes more difficult to, to parse out whether something is, is, a, is a criticism you need to take up and own and try and embrace and figure out or if it's something that's just reflective of a completely different um, version of things, which happens. So, How did you build that skill? Did somebody like guide you through uh, and show you the differences between good and bad rejections or something that came to you through a particular experience? Um, I think there have been some experiences just in terms of terminology. So maybe that, that's the easiest, again, in, in the realm of theory, um, where you realize that you're saying a set of words and they don't mean the same thing. So I talked about that earlier a little bit as well. Um, and then I, you know, it's prompted me sometimes to go and dig and realize that there's a number of different um, backgrounds to the particular term and it can be taken up in all these different ways. So maybe it's some of that work um, over the years. Maybe it's just having a little bit more confidence in myself 
to sort of be able to tease apart those things. Um, maybe it's having students and seeing how some of their work gets taken, taken up. I don't know if I can point to one thing, but I think it takes some time. Um, and I also know people, um, especially early in the field who take rejection so personally. So yeah. having those conversations with them is also very helpful. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about like more junior people, graduate students who are listening to the conversation and wondering like, it, it just that's you don't like it when you are rejected, right? How do you build that armor? So it's, it's useful to know that it takes time. It's about building confidence and all those things. And especially the taking time is, is hard to accept, but that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, successes. Do you have a particular way in which you celebrate a success? Because they are kind of few, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Uh, we should celebrate them, absolutely, when they happen. <laughs> um, I, you know, I mean, give me a bottle of wine and a good dinner, and I, I'm pretty set. <laughs> it's, um, that's pretty much the way I celebrate most things in my life, food and wine. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably... Um, it, I think, I, I mean, Sarah, you know, it's an interrelated question because if we're going to say that we, we don't take the rejections too much to heart, I guess it's for me, it might be the same a little bit with the success, uh-huh. um, sort of keep that neutral reaction most of the time, um, because you're going to have successes and failures and ebbs and flows in a career and, um, good years and, you know, not as good years, right. um, in terms of how academia evaluates us anyway. Um, so yeah, I try and keep it neutral and have a nice dinner. Yeah. That's, and I also read that you like, uh, what is a good gin martini? Uh, yes. What is it about that? Uh, well, it has to be extremely dry. And I once made the mistake, um, Nikki can tell you the story because I think she might've been there, um, of saying to the bartender, I need it to be extra dry. And he thought I meant extra dry removed, which is literally the opposite of extra dry. Um, so it was just like, undrinkable for me. So now I, I'll say to them, like, just a little drop. So no, no, barely any remove. Um, has to be very cold and has to have olives. And it has to be um, a London dry gin. And I, I, I am fussy enough. It's the one thing I'm fussy enough that I will be insistent about at a restaurant or a bar and all all my colleagues can attest to that as well and do your students know no oh (laughs) (laughs) they might I mean you know the the pandemic might have impacted that because there's a number of new graduate students (laughs) come in and they've never met me like it's crazy um so yeah maybe maybe over time they'll accumulate that knowledge but the current crop not so much yeah (laughs) So you mentioned Nikki and I had a great conversation with her and I learned a lot about her uh, career and his story and also the things about the Excel lab. And one of the fascinating pieces to me is how you and her managed to collaborate in such an enjoyable way from the fact that you come from two different basically paradigms. What are the ingredients for you to to create that cohesiveness and, and be able to to work so well together despite having different probably ways of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the first thing is that probably we have more similar ways of thinking <laughs> than, it, okay. than it might have initially appeared. Um, but I think that, I mean, there's there's a few things. The first thing is that we do have fun and I think that the lab members will will tell you that as well. Um, and so we play with ideas, we, we debate ideas, we, we play around with um, concepts. And um, that's a lot of fun. I think ultimately, um, 
the ways in which we've approached our work collaboratively um, have really been about being interested in the same phenomena with different labels attached to them because we come from a different from different spaces and realizing that ultimately we were interested in in many of the same things. Um, so mm-hmm. Nikki started out saying, you know, um, if you integrate um, basic and um, clinical science, you get conceptual coherence. Well, that's conceptual knowledge or conceptual understanding in my language. It still has the word conceptual. Um, but you know, what is that, what does that afford you? Well, if you study adaptive expertise that affords you the ability, um, to, um, learn later in a related domain. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, we've never tested that on the other side of things. So that's the, the entry point. So you start to see where the shared concepts, um, kind of overlap or the not shared concepts, but the concepts overlap. And, uh, and we decided to start playing around and testing it out. And I think from there, the research builds on itself. So it's not always evident, I know, um, but Nikki and I can chart a trail, I think, through our joint work and see how findings from different studies, qualitative or experimental or back and forth, um, have sort of fed into each other and um, built up this collaborative program of research. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I imagine, because again, you're trying to understand each other from different languages, there have been some instances of misunderstanding. Could you share like a funny one, one that you remember being, oh my gosh, I can't believe we, we got into this discussion for some reason. I don't know if you have some available. We get into many discussions that we shouldn't get into for, for no reason. I think uh, our, uh, I, I mean, I can give you a current debate, but it's a, it's a real one. And we have yet to figure out the answer to this, um, okay. which is, if we're thinking about adaptive expertise, um, you know, the capacity to be an adaptive expert, um, then what's more important, um, preparation for future learning as a capability um, or conceptual knowledge? So if I'm going to choose one measure, one measure to assess how well somebody is prepared or is, is developing as an adaptive expert, which one will it be? She'll say conceptual knowledge, I'll say preparation for future learning, and we cannot agree. And we'll oh. continue to debate it till the end of time. So I think, you know, that's that's a real one. Um, and then we bicker about almost everything. Oh, really? <laughs> There's that. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> you bicker from the perspective of being friends more than colleagues or this more intellectual bickering? <laughs> um, probably both. Okay. I think... Um, you know, I, I think we do come from different um, paradigms and um, Nikki speaks with a certainty that I just don't do <laughs> um, as a post-positivist, self-proclaimed post-positivist. Um, and I, I think uh, I'm a little bit more relational in my language. So right. there's those, if we bump into those things a lot, um, everybody will tell you that the first word out of Nikki's mouth, if you have an idea is no, I'm like, <gasps> you can't just say no, no is not an answer. <laughs> right so, yeah those types of things they, they they come up a lot but as I said we have fun so yeah. so uh, when you said you have fun and I think and part of this was what Nick, Nikki was telling us it's also the friendship that the two of you share like mm-hmm. how did you um think about the role of friendship in, in research collaborations because some people might think I don't want to be friends with my colleagues and some people are really good friends with each other like what make it work for the two of you um, I think, I mean, the friendship, so the, the most important fr- thing for me in a collaboration isn't friendship, it's probably trust. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, that at trust both professionally, um, but also personally in a certain level of integrity 
um, in a collaboration has to be maintained. So those are the most important things for me um, from a professional perspective. And the friendship is almost incidental. Um, we happen to be very similar people with very similar sense of humor um, who like a lot of the same things. Um, and that I think amplifies, you know, we have a lot of um, unspoken communication. We often finish each other's sentences. We often say, are thinking the same thing. Um, we have the same reactions to things. Um, so that helps in a collaboration. There's a lot of tacit sort of implicit um, things going on when you're truly friends. Um, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary. It's sort of a nice uh, side effect uh, for the two of us. Yeah. We're also very similar in age. We live in the same city. We have similar families in age. So, yeah. Right. And you were also able to build a, a very successful lab and a unique lab in the sense that you bring in different perspectives in. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering about the students, like uh, what does it mean to be a student in your lab and what kind of experiences do you have for them that they might not find elsewhere? Um, well, they have to listen to us bicker um, and, <laughs> and follow our extremely tangential conversations, which can veer from a serious scientific discussion to something we saw on TV or oh. a podcast because we both love true crime podcasts. So oh. that all can happen. Um, so they have to deal with that. Um, and, you know, they usually gain their voices and just participate. Um, so that works out well. Um, I think that what we really push them to do um, is think about what they're interested in from a number of different perspectives, both methodologically and theoretically, um, because those are the things that pop into our minds when we're discussing things. And so um, they get a lot of that um, interdisciplinarity, but with uh, still a focus on certain kinds of phenomena. So mm -hmm. I think um, that's, that is probably helpful to them because they're getting it all in one space. Um, and in fact, it's something that as program director for the PhD program, I've tried to um, support having in more courses um, and more experiences across our program, because I think it's, it's, it's a key part of interdisciplinarity. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So around those lines, uh, what's going on at the lab these days and what are some of the curiosities that you are exploring right now? Um, well, let's see, we're, we're trying to look at, um, we're starting to look at relationships between um, adaptive expertise or adaptive capacity and uh, resilience. Um, so that, that one probably is pandemic driven um, to a great degree, um, but sort of just the, the question of whether or not being better prepared um, for those moments of complexity or ambiguity or, you know, whatever we want to call it, then we can debate that too. Um, might help reduce some of the um, feelings of um, frustration and burnout and um, helplessness that many health professionals have been experiencing. So um, it's been brought up in some data. Um, so we thought we would pull that thread and pursue it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an interesting one together with many colleagues from the Wilson Center, including uh, David Rojas and Paula Roland and Stella Eng. So it's a nice collaborative um, effort. Um, we're going to look a little bit more carefully at preparation for future learning. Um, I know most people probably don't know what that term means, but there are um, assessments and measures used in the education literature to look at people's um, development of that particular capability. And we're going to play around it and see how domain specific or domain general it might be. Um, not domain general problem solving. I didn't say that. And I, <laughs> I don't mean that. Um, so we're doing that work with Lawrence Grusin, and uh, those are sort of the two projects we're mostly thinking about right now. 
Nice. Um, but it's, it's fun. It's a lot of collaboration. Um, there's for the second project with Lawrence, um, you know, we have a bet on the hypothesis. We'll see who wins, but Nikki and I are on the same side. We're, we're on, we we're on the same side with that one. And, um, Lawrence is on the other side. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now on the personal side, what does Maria enjoy doing? I know you like cooking. That's also thing I, I love. <laughs> uh, I got it right. I think cooking yeah. and books, good books. What else? Yeah. Or what's in your list to do uh, on the personal side? On on a daily on a on a regular basis, not pandemic. Um, lots of dinner parties, lots of friends, lots of family. We see my parents quite regularly. Um, I will find a beach when I can, um, wow. if possible. I, I do very much enjoy heat, and <laughs> I, I really more than anything. So it's January now, so that's that. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, spending time with my kids. Um, yeah, it's not, not, nothing too exciting. I'm not, I don't like the outdoors very much. I will go for long walks. That's about it. You can get me to walk. Um, yeah. Okay. So my last question, putting all of that together, the things you like, the things you don't like, you don't like heights. That's the other thing I learned. Um, and cold. That's very clear. Um, if you put all those things together, what would you have been done if you were if you hadn't chosen academia as your career path? What <laughs> about it? Yeah, I it, you know it's a tough one. I feel like when we were at the age of choosing, people were like doctor, lawyer, dentist, yeah. um, you know, social worker. You know, it was very um, prescribed set of professions. Um, but now I see people doing things I would love to do that are so creative and, you know, um, involve a lot more, um, writing and I don't even know what I would call this. So, you know, it's, that's, it's that vague to me. Um, but something more creative, I think I, I could have done, um, something in publishing or, you know, advertising or, or that type of work, I think would have appealed to me to some degree, although I'm not sure, um, you know, it's nice to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, as I said, Syrah, I hadn't thought anything beyond PhD from the time I was a child. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. That, that's why we want to ask these questions. Just sometimes people have really crazy ideas and, and it's, it's good to know that there is life outside academia, especially when oh, you're- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I can tell you I would not have been a teacher. I see teaching. I don't like that. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what about your kids? Have they? How old are they now? They're uh, 12 and 10. Okay, so they can express some interest. What do you see percolating in terms of their interests? Are they borrowing well, the parents? <laughs> well, I told them they can't be YouTubers, so there's that. Oh, and then um, they, they, I think my son is currently wants to be a meteorologist for absolutely no reason that I can actually discern. But anyway, um, and, uh, my daughter's is as yet unclear, but she would not be adverse to being CEO of a bank, um, that makes solid environmental decisions. Wow. And you said it's not, it's unclear. Oh my gosh. That sounds very clear. <laughs> I just don't think that's viable, but anyway, it's who's, who am I? So she can dream. Oh, and this is the perfect time for dreaming, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You never know. Maybe in the future, she will be one of yeah. those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You never know. Yeah. Okay, Maria, thank you very much for this time. Uh, it was very enjoyable chatting with you. Thank you for sharing. Appreciated you being with us. Thank you, Styra. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, listening to me chatter. <laughs> okay.
<laughs> Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.